Ephesians chapter 5. And um, before we do that, as we talk about marriage today, I want to show you this little video that some of you have seen. Yes, sweetheart. Uh-huh. I always was your sweetheart. Yep. I was your best lover. I don't know how many others you had, but I was the best. Oh, I know. <laughs> She said she loves you, Daddy. I love you too, Ma. Behave yourself, she said. I'm always good. Okay. She said she loves you, Grandpa. I love you. Okay. Okay. This is your song. Behave yourself, she says. Okay. Are you all right now? So, a million or more times. Happy Mother's Day. Why would I do that to you, right? Like, come on, dude, be cool. Let me tell you why. Because there's a media storm out there that tells us what marriage is supposed to be. 
Kim Kardashian, whatever. Just name your celebrity of what marriage should be and how it can be and what the purpose of it is. And I wanted that to be in your minds, that image of a long-term covenant. Because that's what Paul is describing here. I couldn't have described that better, so I do apologize. We do have complimentary tissues. And I know that that's... (laughs) The hard to watch if you, you know, but I just wanted, for me, I couldn't think of a better picture of what a married couple coming to the finish line of their lives could look like, you know? Because that's what Paul is describing in Ephesians 5 when he talks about marriage. If you've got your Bibles in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the Husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In verse 28, and in the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as their own bodies, as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Father, would you give us insight into this passage, into a, a, a part of Scripture that our culture would like to ignore, But in this passage, boy, you've given us so much truth and life and hope for why you've created marriage. And we just pray that you'll give those words to us today that they go from our head into our hearts. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I have been uh, been married for 21 years. And I know uh, what everybody's thinking. You've clearly married up. (laughs) And it's true. I'm totally guilty. But I'm looking, I mean, you guys, I know that the others in here know this story of marrying up. <laughs> but as we think about what it means to really be married up, Paul gives us a better scripture, a better promise, a better covenant here of what it really means to marry up. And it has little to do, none to do with looks and everything to do with Jesus and bringing him into the marriage. And so when we look at this this morning, what I want to talk about for the few minutes we have together is what it really means to marry up to marry up with Christ in our marriage. And that's what this passage does. Now look, this is a tricky one. This is one that I would, maybe would have skipped because of the culture that surrounds it. And it's fraught with difficulty and fraught with complication. And and we're going to hold a little close. Like when we came over the mountains coming back, you know, guys, how we hugged over the Haitian mountains. You hug a little bit to the mountain because uh, you don't want to get close to the edge and go off. So we're going to hug close to the mountain today. We're going to hug close to the rock. We're going to hold close to Jesus and to his word uh, so that we don't go off the edge. But this passage, what Paul unfolds here, 
is, and this is the pattern we're going to go with. He, he describes what marriage is. Number one, he describes what it does. Number two, number three, what it needs. And number four, what it shows. And that's, that's the journey we're going to take with you guys today. So marriage, what is marriage? He tells us in verse 31 that therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now that is the New Testament scripture on marriage. By the way, it's the Old Testament one too because he's just quoting from Genesis 2. 24. This is where the scripture comes together and in the New Testament and says, this is the passage that describes marriage to you. And it says that the two will leave. And if you've got a King James, leave and cleave. The the word cleave in the Old Testament is nothing to do with a meat cleaver of splitting something apart. It's cleave, meaning I'm going to stick together, that it is a genuine, in fact, the word is just covenant. Like that's the word that is saying, that it is a covenant. So cleave and covenant. So when you ask what is marriage, the Bible says it's a covenant. Now, what our culture says that it is is maybe something completely different. Because the culture would say that it has to do with chemistry. Am I right, people? <laughs> it's, it's about, I have this chemistry, I have these tingly feelings, and that it's chemistry over covenant. But the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible knows of it as covenant over chemistry. In fact, marriage isn't just a declaration of my present love. It's a promise of future love. When I stood at the altar, I promised Shannon 21 years ago that I would love her today. I was declaring my present love and making a promise of future love. It wasn't a promise that I would always feel it, but a promise that I would be it. Promises that I make some days and break others, but the covenant was that we would stick it out and figure it out and love each other. A declaration of my future love. And what it really means is this. Chemistry is important. And by the way, chemistry is really what it is because when you first meet somebody and you're like, you get the tinglys, there's chemicals firing off in your brain. And what we've define marriage as in our culture is that's what marriage is. And when that, not if, but when those chemicals die down, I'm out of here. Now think back, you might think, well, Darren, isn't chemistry important? You know, that first time you kissed your wife, do you, do you, do you remember how it felt? Does it feel that way now? And the answer is no. But it shouldn't feel that way now. Because you know what I was thinking the first time? I don't know if you know this. I'm probably, I told you first service, so I'll tell you again second service. You know what I was thinking the first time I kissed my wife? I can't believe I'm kissing Shannon Anderson. (laughs) She's into me. (laughs) I can't believe it. That's awesome. And you know what it was 100% about? Me. That wasn't sacrificial love. That's selfish love. That's an ego boost, not love. So 21 years later, I can say I can't believe she's kissing me, but think of it like, wow, and she's stuck around for 21 years. <laughs> they thought that was funnier than I thought it was. Um, it doesn't feel like it did then, but it's not supposed to. It shouldn't. If it does, then that's about me. You can have a warm night of passion and love and not sacrifice a thing because it's about you. And marriage is not about you. It's about a covenant of a future love. 
declaration of present, a promise of future. And so when the world says it's about chemistry, no wonder our marriages are falling apart because we went into it thinking that Kim Kardashian was telling us the truth. And when the tinglys go out, then I just go find some more tinglys. But the tinglys are supposed to wear out, and the promise wasn't about that. And think to the future. Do you think that what I just showed you in that video, and some of you have already seen it before, do you think that wasn't a different kind of chemistry? It's the kind of chemistry that happens when a covenant has been kept and maintained. So what is marriage? It's covenant over chemistry. That's what it is. Now, what does it do? Marriage has a purpose. And in fact, he tells us the purpose when he talks about it with, in verses 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He tells us that marriage has two purposes in that, to wash us and to weave us, to mop us up (laughs) and to mesh us together, to bathe us and to blend us, to cleanse us and to connect us. That we are connected to him in this and that we are washed through this. And so when you think about the purpose of Jesus, why did Jesus come? He came, of course, to pay for our sins and to be worshipped, but he came to make us better, to make us new, to be part of this journey, to say, I know that you are more than what you are right now. And so I came to make you better, to give you power over the sin. It's, a, it's, a, it's what we call transformation. It's what we call sanctification. And so if that's the purpose of Jesus in our lives, he now says, and, oh, by the way, I'm comparing that to marriage. So the purpose of Jesus is to, to transform and to sanctify. And so in a marriage, my gig, my wife's gig in marriage, the purpose of it isn't to replace the Savior, but to partner with the Savior. To make me into, to say, look, Darren, I appreciate you, but you, there's more to it than this. You, you're, there's a better version of you coming, and I believe in you. And I'm not taken off at the first sign of, trouble. I'm going to make you with the Savior. I'm going to partner with Jesus in in his journey to make you the better version of who you are. Because what did did, uh, Paul say in Philippians 1.6, right? He says that uh, he's going to complete that good work that he began in you, right? That's Jesus's gig in our lives. And he puts a wife and he puts a husband in each other's lives to partner with him in making us into that. Now, that said, in our modern-day parlance of marriage, what is marriage about? I'm fine the way I am. I don't need to change at all. So what I want you for is to make me a better version of my awesome. It's not about meshing together or cleansing anything. It's about saying, look, I'm cool the way I am, so if you're coming along, what I need from you is uh, your paycheck. I need your love. I need your... But it's, it's about... And add on to your life, not about literally weaving in and meshing and cleansing the life that you already have. And while Christ loves you just the way you are, yeah, your spouse ought to love you just the way you are, accept you just the way you are, and to love you too much to let you stay the way you are. Because I tell you, Jesus loves and accepts every one of us right the way we are, and he loves you way too much to let you stay that way. And in my life with my wife, she loved me just the way I was and hopefully the way I am today. 
and loves me too much to let me stay that way. Because I can get in here and act like I'm cool. And you get to see just this top 1% of me. But let me tell you who knows the other 99%. And she knows that it ain't a picnic. She knows that I ain't a rodeo. (laughs) And she loves me and keeps leaning on and nudging. And another way to put it, by the way, is like, if you guys remember those rock tumblers? Some of you kids maybe don't know what these are. But when I was a kid, you could order these out of catalogs. And you take a couple of rocks and you put them in the tumbler and you turn it on, close the door, and it spins. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm crazy? Okay. <laughs> like four of you. <laughs> anybody over 45 probably knows what I'm talking about. These rocks would tumble together inside this machine, this tumbler, and slowly but surely, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, and you pull the rock out and both of them are no longer bumpy and rough, but they're... They're smooth and perfected. And in marriage, he says to submit one to another. He talks about that kind of community. And then he goes right into the next statement, and wives submit to husbands. He's literally saying that we need community to be part of our transformation. We need community to be a part of him making us better versions of who we are. And what he really needs is marriage, which is a unique form of fellowship that locks you into this tumbler together, that rubs off all the rough edges, and it does it day after day, week after week, month after month. And the fact of the matter is is that the chemistry that we witnessed on that screen, that doesn't happen in a day or a month or a year or even a decade. It just takes time. I was watching, uh, you know, Robin just had her birthday, and uh, how long have you all been married? 20 you're just kids. But watching the photos over the years, and just this is just this is what love is at this level. It's so much better, so much greater, so much grander. Watching how Derek put together this surprise birthday party for her, and watching all these friends of all these years coming together to celebrate. But what I really watched was the community of fellowship, but then I wa- I'm looking at the, the community and the fellowship of marriage that is building a love together and building them into better uh, transformed versions of who Jesus has come to create them into be. So that's like this, the 32,000-foot version. I'm going to bring it down to the ground level because you've got to go home with each other. And this sounds great when I'm talking about it up in the sky, but on the ground level, here's what this looks like. If you're young and married, if you're young and you're not married yet, if you've been married a while, <laughs> what this tells us if we're to partner with Christ in making us, in transforming us, and sanctifying us, that means, number one, that we can expect confrontation. That that ought not to be a surprise. It maybe isn't even the exception. But us button heads with each other is part of the plan. And in a young marriage, especially, you start having conflict, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this guy's such a jerk. She's so mean. She and what happens... In many cases, as we hit the eject button, because that wasn't what we saw on TV. But if I go into it expecting and knowing that this tumbling, this thing is that I'm literally together over the years, Jesus is using each other to make us into the bride that he has created us to be. Doesn't mean it's going to be fun all the time. It doesn't mean it's going to be awesome all the time means there's going to be awesome moments, there's going to be awesome seasons, and there's going to be times when you're pulling together, there's going to be times when you're stretching apart. 
But over the years, if you expect that, know that, you know what, confrontation, conflict isn't a surprise. It's just part of the journey. So it does that. I think it, what it also does is that it actually helps you to choose, and I am talking to you young people now, who you're going to marry. Because let me tell you, if we were to look at what match.com or harmony.com or farmersonly.com, <laughs> College Grove, man, represent. <laughs> We know what we're looking for, and it's all to do with traits, with features that get worse, when, listen to me, get worse as you get older, not better. So I'm investing a, a promise of future love based on traits that don't get better, get worse. And if you're young especially, you look at it and see, wow, there's a room with 10 potential people in here, and I eliminate seven of them just because they don't look right. And I'm signing up for something based upon a, a trait that doesn't get better but gets... What about flipping the switch and saying, no, I'm looking for a trait that gets better as it gets older. For a personality that, that improves with age, that doesn't, you know, disprove. That's not the right word. I've just made up a new word. Someone write that down. It's okay to say, you know what, I, chemistry is important. Shouldn't I be attracted? Which is the third thing I would say. Absolutely. Attraction is important. But let me tell you what is attractive in your mid-40s, hypothetically speaking. What's attractive? When you are loved by somebody that you respect. There's a chemistry that happens there that has nothing to do with what the world would say, nothing to do with the little chemicals, nothing to do with the tinglys. When you love, and let me tell you, I've, I've known Shannon now for more than 21 years, but the way that she mothers my children our children, the way that she loves them when I'm going overseas and I don't, I, I literally never worry about the kids because I know she's got it figured out. She's got it handled. The way that she nurtures them and individually with each kid and parents them to their particular personality. And I respect her so immensely that to be loved by her, that's way better than I can't believe Shannon Anderson's kissing me. It's way deeper and way more profound and so, yeah, should we be attracted? Absolutely. But there's a level of attraction. There's a comprehensive attraction that you only get when you stick it out. It doesn't just cleanse us, but it connects us. It meshes us. It brings us together with Christ. And what I'm about to do right now, I think would be best called um, stunt preaching. And what I mean is in the next five minutes, I'm going to go into a subject that is fraught with difficulty, fraught with danger, and I'm going to get back out again without getting hurt. <laughs> and I'm not going to let it hijack the rest of that. So uh, watch this. Um, <laughs> it's like the parkour of preaching. <laughs> so I'm going to scream parkour at random moments in the next five minutes. Because <laughs> it doesn't just cleanse us but it connects us, it meshes us, it weaves us. You see, our culture tells us that there's no difference between a man and a woman. Culture tells us that we're all the same. The Bible, on the other hand, agrees with science because science tells us that we ain't the same. You can look under, you know, in a microscope, you can look at the chemistry of a, of a female and look at the chemistry of a male, and they're two different creatures. They're not the same, they're different. So the Bible acknowledges that we're different, 
And instead of saying, well, and then you're pretty much hosed because of that, it gives us a, a solution for it. It gives us a bridge across each other. And that, the fact of the matter is, is in our society right now, especially in Western culture, you don't see this much overseas, but here, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent trying to figure out how to connect and to bridge the gap between a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman, because we're different. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, the five love languages, because quite frankly, we're different. And the Bible gives us one principle and one principle only. And it is far-reaching, it is comprehensive, and yet very flexible. And that principle is headship. Because he says, can't see. <laughs> it's headship. With husbands, you are the head of your wife. And whatever it means in your minds or whatever, when I look to the scriptures, and I've studied a lot and read a lot, as best I can describe it with my finite abilities, is that it just means the deciding vote. It means that when you come together, man and woman, in a marriage, that there are things that you're going to disagree on and you're going to agree on. And in that situation, that the husband would get the deciding vote. It's like the tiebreaker. Now, when I say that, I can feel the bristling. So hold on, because Paul did too, and he went immediately into it. He doesn't let us say, well, what about this and what about that? Because he covers it immediately after he says that the husband is head of the wife. He immediately says two things, that number one, that a man must never exercise that privilege for himself, ever. Because how did Christ love the church? That is, so yeah, what about this and what about that? And he's saying, oh, no, 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 don't go into that at all because you're loving your wife like Christ loves the church. That means this. I'm going to give you a practical example. You want to buy a car. She wants the red one. You want the blue one. Now, as a husband, do you just say, well, look, Ephesians 5.22, I get, to, I get the blue one. <laughs> Problem solved. And she's like, yeah, but what about verse 25? Like Christ loves the church and you're dying for you and that doesn't look anything like that. That looks like you saying you get your way all the time. And in that situation, what I think Paul is saying, get her the red car. Because as Christ loves the church, you're sacrificially saying that it's, I'll give you that because that's what, it's for you. It's, it makes you happy. It's for fulfilling for you. So at the end of the day, then if, if I can't, pick my own car as a husband, then what do I get out of this? <laughs> what we get ultimately is as the, as the spiritual pastors of our homes is the privilege, the responsibility, and I would even say the weight of making a tie-breaking vote. If there's a break in the marriage where there's something that's clearly going to harm your marriage, clearly going to harm the children, spiritually going a different direction, rewriting scripture, whatever it is that that, as a husband at that point, it is your job, your responsibility, and your weight to cast the tie-breaking vote in that situation. And it is a great weight. It is a great responsibility. And far too many of us in this culture, as far as men, have outsourced our spiritual responsibilities. And it ought not to be, because in this gap, in this bridging of the gap, these genders can come together in ways that are a force that are literally unstoppable in the kingdom of darkness. Parenthetically, no wonder Satan is attacking marriage so much in our culture. 
The second thing that I noticed, not only does he say that the man must never exercise headship to please himself, the second thing that I notice about this is that what he didn't say, he gives no cultural details at all. He doesn't say, okay, and because of that, then this is who handles the checkbook, this is who works, this is who stays home. That's all cultural. And this is a principle that is formation and freedom. To say that in your culture, in a, in a Haitian culture, it's going to look different maybe than in an American culture. It might look different in your home and our home. He's giving us a principle that gives us freedom, but he doesn't put those details in it. And the danger, I think, always happens when you've got like the King James only Bible, you know, bumper sticker on it, and this is how we do it in our home, and this is what it means that I'm, there's a new sheriff in town, and yada, yada, yada. That's a cultural thing. Don't ever, listen, don't let anybody come into your marriage, to your family, and say, well, this cultural thing, this is how we did it, and that's how you're going to do it. That's how you should do it. No, no, no. Take a step back and say, no, this is, we know the principle here. So how does that form in, in, the, in the flexibility and the freedom of our family? How does that look in, in our marriage? We know what it does. We, we know what it is. And thirdly, we know what it needs when we talk about marriage because the word, and I can't take credit for this. This is a Tim Keller phrase. Love philanthropy. <laughs> because what marriage really needs, I started in verse 21, if you notice that. In your Bible, if you've got the little breaks and it actually splits that up, but the translators did that. That's what the people that printed your Bible, Paul didn't split this up. This is all a continuation of the same thought starting even up into verse 1 and 2. And it says submitting one to another. But if you go back to verse 18, he talks about be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody, giving thanks for everything. God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one another. And he doesn't say, okay, now we're done with that. Now we're going to talk about marriage. Flows right into it, and husbands and wives, the whole message is there. Because what we need, whether it's in our own community of, uh, of discipleship together, we need not only that in our small groups and in our relationships, but in our marriage as well. And what we need, I think, is verse 18 be filled with the Spirit. That's the fuel. And the fuel, the, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Students? Love. So if I'm filled with the Spirit, then I'm going to have this overflowing. And Jesus mentions that many times. Rivers of living water would flow from within you. He mentions many times the idea of an overflowing, almost of like a sloshing around of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And if the fruit of that is love, then I'm going to have so much of that left over. What is a philanthropist? Philanthropist is somebody who's done well financially, really, really well financially, and they have done so well financially that they have now set up trust funds and funds to give money away. And so a love philanthropist is somebody who has understood so much what Christ did for them. What the job of the Spirit is, is to take it from your head and to your heart. And a, a literal existential experience with the Holy Spirit inside of you, so much so that I have so much over that I can now be a love philanthropist to my wife. And in our culture, what happens is this. I'm depending too much on her love for me. And so when it gets to the point where she's depending on it for me and maybe I've done something real stupid, which odds are that's how it's going down at our house. And if she's depending only on, this, on my love for her and, and I've, I'm at a point where I'm not doing well in that area, then she has nothing to give back. I have nothing to give back. It's when we literally are baptized in the Spirit 
that we have that enough to give over into our spouses as well. We've done so well in the spirit that now I have the ability to give it away. But I don't no longer put on my wife the responsibility of trying to fulfill things in me that, frankly, only Christ can fulfill. That she's not looking to me to do something for her that God never promised or even expected of me to do. Or just as likely expecting something of me that I should be doing. And I'm blowing it in that area. And I'm deficient because what does a philanthropist do? You're giving to somebody who most times, sometimes doesn't even deserve it. That I'm giving out of an abundance of it. And let me tell you, I truly believe with all of my heart that that is the key and the ticket and the fuel, if you will, to do what he's telling us and what marriage is and what its purpose is, that what it needs is a literal daily experience and existential, in many cases, of the spirit coming out of you and into your spouse. It's what it needs and what it shows. You see, sometimes in our lives, in our own world, and maybe you know somebody or maybe this has been a part of your own story, that you've come to a point where it was dry and it was I was depending on somebody and I wasn't full of the Spirit. And so you made a decision not to be a philanthropist but a philanderer. Taking your vows and said, well, I'm going to stretch it here and out of this emptiness in me I've made some bad decisions. And the philanderer moment is really when I'm saying I don't have enough left in me of the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm challenging us is to to take a step away from that, to go back to the cross, to allow us to be filled up with that Spirit, to be a philanthropist of it. Because, and this is why, the most important thing in this is what it shows, I think. We know what it does. We know the purpose of it. We know what marriage is. It's a covenant over chemistry. We know what, what it needs, the fuel of it. But what it shows... What does he say? This is a profound mystery in verse 32. Speaks of it as the gospel. That our picture of marriage is a picture of Christ and his love for us. That what it shows is the love story of Christ for us. Christ, the ultimate spouse. The picture of God in the Old Testament is one of of a, of a husband and a, and a wife. In the New Testament, it's a, a groom and he coming for his bride. There's this picture that in your marriage, parents, you are preaching to your children without saying a word by how you love each other, by how you stick it out together. Truly, Jesus, the greatest spouse ever, says to you that I love you and I want you and I'm accepting you and I want... And when we reject him, for someone else. Think about it. He says in, to, to his disciples, look, there's one reason that it's okay for someone to leave their spouse. It's because of infidelity. Now think about that. He's saying that's the one reason that you could. He gives himself the out with you and he doesn't take it. What a great and loving father, a great savior a great groom who's coming back for his bride. And when we stick it out in our marriages, when we love each other through the good and through the bad, we're telling our kids a story. And I know in this room right now, there are some of you right now, you're in the thick of it. 
And I would encourage you today. There's lots of practical steps, and so I'm not, I'm not here giving you counseling or another. We've got plenty of capable. Tom and Amy, you guys can help them probably. But, but I would ask you before you quit, go back to Ephesians 5. Go back to what the purpose of marriage was to begin with. Go back to what, it's a covenant over chemistry. I don't feel anything anymore. Paul, Paul knew you wouldn't. The Bible knew you wouldn't. And there's moments where you're coming together, pulling apart. Before you call it quits today, and I'm talking to somebody in particular. I don't know who it is, but I can just feel it. Whoever it is, if you're thinking of quitting, don't. Don't quit. We'd love to walk through this with you. You, man, you, you, don't, you may not even know this, but one of the things that when I've discovered in counseling, by the way, is the feeling of, oh, wait, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one that this is going through this. There's sometimes there's just a, a relief of knowing that it's, this is the normal part of the marriage journey, but to know, you, hey, you're not alone, and we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to walk through this with you because you have a chance now to tell a story to your children that it's no longer about my ego and my thing and you know, Shannon Anderson's kissing me because she's into me and me saying to my kids that, yeah, you know what? It has not always been great. There have been days where... She didn't want to look at me or talk to me. And we pulled through, we pushed through, and there are moments where anybody can say we're done, but we didn't, and we're on this journey together in this tumbler that God calls marriage. And so remember what it shows. It shows the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's coming back for a groom, for a bride. He's a groom coming back for a bride coming back for you. And we get to tell that story today. Would you stand up? I want to pray with you. If you get this, young people especially, because you're coming to a point where you're going to be, I, well, there was a conversation this morning. I heard the teenagers, do you think she's cute? Do you think you... I heard it. But if you remember... Growing older into this in these marriage, these are the remember what marriage is, remember what it does, what it needs, and what it shows. From the youngest until the oldest, there's a story of Jesus being written and being told in your lives through your marriages. Let's pray. Father, oh, thank you so much for my wife <laughs> and the patience and the perseverance. And Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. And for those here today, Lord, that maybe you are at a place where it's just really hard to stick it out, I ask for you to literally baptize them in the Spirit today. A real, live, existential experience of your Spirit all over them. So much so that it's not out of poverty, but out of love, prosperity, that they are now able to give back to their spouse. I'm thankful for what you've done in our lives and for the marriages that are represented here. And that you've taken such a complicated subject and taught us that it really isn't that complicated after all. Forgive us for letting the culture teach us. Forgive us for letting the media tell us and today, inspire us and empower us to live out Ephesians 5.
that we really are marrying up today. And it's in your name we pray.